we scare you? Well, it's us, the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. We are supposed to be on a break, but we decided not to. And for those of you who don't know, I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subasati. And there are few things in this world that could take us out of our August hibernation sabbatical period to come back. Even though we love doing this, this is our kind of time to regenerate and rethink. But something happened. Something big happened in film right now. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about it or mention it at the very, very least. That's right. And if you haven't seen the title of our mini episode, we would like to talk about the Ghostbusters reboot. It's not an obscure topic. It's not something that nobody's talking about. I think even at the time that this mini episode comes out, tongues will still be wagging and people will still be arguing and arguing quite passionately about this film. There's something about this film. Well, there are many things about this film that's got horror fans in a bit of a tizzy. And so we really wanted to get our voices in there because it touches upon some topics that we feel very strongly about. Part of the reason why this film resonates so much with Andrea and I is because We grew up on these films, the original 1984 Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2 in 1989. These were staples of our childhood. We had very different upbringings, but Ghostbusters was a big common touchstone for both of us. I can't remember a day or a time that Ghostbusters weren't in my life, that I didn't love it, that I wasn't dying to be one of them. So it's it's a huge part of who I am, and I think a lot of my humor developed out of watching those films. A lot of the ideas I had about film and filmmaking developed out of those films. So it's a hugely influential thing to talk about on its own. But now with a reboot in play, well, it's it's just an even bigger topic, especially because of the way they did said reboot. I think for a lot of horror fans our age, Ghostbusters was also a bit of a gateway film into the horror genre. Obviously, it's a film that crosses many genres. It blurs many lines. I witnessed a pretty intense Facebook fight just this afternoon as to whether or not it's considered horror proper. I don't really think it is, but I do know that as a kid, I loved the scary parts. I loved how the scary parts could be funny and also scary and the great characterization. I really do feel like this movie is part of what set me on the path that I'm on today. Now, just as Alex was mentioning, when I was a kid and I watched this movie again and again and again, I did ask for a proton pack toy over Christmas. It was, it was basically a flashlight that you would point at a blank wall and it would, it would show an illumination of, a ghost, you know, Slimer or whatever other ghost that you would then shoot and it would make sound effects and stuff. And I loved that thing. I wanted it so bad. And thank you so much, Santa Claus. You made my Christmas that year. But in my heart of hearts, when I thought about the story and I imagined it was real, I would imagine that maybe I could be one of them. Maybe there could be just one female Ghostbuster, just one girl that they brought in for whatever reason. And it never once occurred to me that the Ghostbusters could be all women. I also had that experience too. I remember very specifically when I was probably about nine or so, I got a Ghostbusters jumpsuit. I'm pretty sure it was Bankman. And I got it, I think, when my mom and I went on a solo trip to Florida, like Disney World, and we went to Universal Studios one day. Somehow we got it there because I remember it was like a week-long vacation or five-day vacation. It was just me and my mom, and I wore that goddamn jumpsuit every day 
day. I was like, I am so fucking cool. I am one of them. I am a Ghostbuster. It just, it was so huge to me. And I had that same instinct. I just wanted one lady Ghostbuster. And there were terrific female characters in the series. You had Dana Barrett played by Sigourney Weaver and Janine, their secretary, played by Annie Potts. They are both terrific and iconic in totally different ways. I love them and I appreciate them in the original films. But you know, it's just not quite the same. And this led to multiple playground fights that I was in. And by fights, I mean I asked to do something, I was told no, and then I quietly walked away and hid my shame. But all the boys would play Ghostbuster, all of them. And at best I could get was like, you can be our secretary. And I, if any guys are out there listening to this, I don't know if you can register that amount of pain to be so private in this experience. Like Andrea and I didn't know each other when we were kids. If we had, the world would probably be a very different place right now. But we we didn't know each other. I didn't know any other girls really who were into Ghostbusters in the same way I was. So I didn't have like a little pack or a little team to play with on my own. So I think that's where horror fandom for a lot of people becomes a very lonely experience. And especially as a female horror fan, it's so isolating to love this thing you love, but to not truly be accepted by a community. And I remember first hearing about this all-female Ghostbusters reboot, and it was like, my heart grew three times bigger. It started beating faster. I got kind of sweaty. I got kind of misty-eyed. Like, it was my body didn't know what to do with this information. I'm trying to remember the first time I heard about the movie, and I think I had maybe the initial knee-jerk reaction that a lot of people had that's just uh, scared defensiveness of, oh, no, please don't touch another franchise that is so near and dear to my heart and turn it into a piece of shit remake. You know, I, I heard that it was all women, and I was like, okay, well, you know, that's that sounds really good in theory, but if it's not a good film, this isn't going to do anything for me. And it took a while to digest the idea simply because we have seen so many bad remakes. And that is really the crux of the debates that we have seen online ever since this trailer came out. It is known as the most disliked trailer ever. Sony released this trailer on YouTube and they wound up deleting so many negative comments. It was downvoted. The most disliked video on YouTube perhaps ever. Celebrities were consulted. It was a big cultural phenomenon before it was even a thing. It's a class four operation. That's okay, she seems peaceful. My name is Erin Gilbert, doctor of particle physics. Ah! That stuff went everywhere, by the way, in every crack. Very hard to wash off. We have dedicated our whole lives to studying the paranormal. Now there's sightings all over the city. There are people out there that need our help. Holtzman, you're a brilliant engineer. Erin, no one's better at quantum physics than you. We can provide a real service. I'm joining the club. You guys are really smart about this science stuff, but I know New York. And I can borrow a car from my uncle. <laughs> uh, you didn't disclose that the vehicle was going to be a hearse. It's a Cadillac! Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh. Did you want to? Sorry. sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. Okay. 
Someone is creating a device that amplifies paranormal activity. And we might be the only ones who can stop it. Holtzman, come on! The hat is too much, right? Is it the wig or the hat? There's a bigger picture at hand here. These ghosts can possess the human form. The devil is a liar! Get out of my friend! Ghost! Ow, that's gonna leave a mark! The power of pain compels you! Ow! It was incredibly disheartening to see that. I think everyone had a bit of panic and a bit of fear because, oh no, this beloved thing from my childhood could be kind of ruined, which is bullshit, frankly, but I understand that knee-jerk impulse. I think that's natural and that's okay. But really, when you bring your head above water, you should fucking know better by this point in our lives. That's right. And if you've seen this image that has been circulating around social media, it's an image of Kristen Wiig at what I guess is the premiere of the film. And she's holding hands with a young female Ghostbuster fan who's in a jumpsuit. And then there's another one in the background who is looking at her with just the biggest eyes. And I felt like that really just solidified the importance, the importance of representation, the importance of this film, and why any discussion about this all-female remake necessarily has to become elevated beyond the nuts and bolts of the film. Well, that's interesting. So why don't we take a quick second to talk about representation in film and why is that important? Why does this matter to anyone? 99% of the time when I hear someone saying that, it's usually coming from the mouth of a straight white man. And, you know, hashtag not all men, blah, 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 blah. But straight white men have a monopoly on popular culture. It is a truth as old as time. It's just the way it is. And if you're a fan of pop culture and you're not a cis white man, you've got to work around it and you can still engage with it, but it's harder. It's frankly a lot harder. And one of the reasons why we do this podcast and why I care about pop culture and why I follow every bit of it that I can is because I think particularly in, you know, first world, Western world, pop culture is like a common language. It is something we all share, we can all identify with, we all have our favorite parts, but it is a generalized kind of understanding of our society as it is right now. And I think more and more we are seeing clawing back of changing of representation. And that usually comes with a bit of a fight. And I've seen progression with, you know, obviously women, different races, with sexuality. Those are becoming part of the conversation. But I feel like the Ghostbusters reboot is such a massive step forward because it is a summer tentpole movie. This is a big cultural moment and it's a lot of pressure on this one film and I think we're seeing a lot of anxiety around that pressure. It's kind of that common saying, if they can see it, they can be it. And I think for a lot of us who kind of grew up in the 80s and even 90s, we were doing this all in our heads. We were imagining what that was in our own heads and on the outskirts with whatever we could find. 
But to see it represented in mainstream media like this, like I was walking to work the other day and I was texting Andrea a photo of this. I was almost at work. I travel across Toronto to get to my job and I was off my streetcar walking up the street and a bus passed me and it had a huge plastered wrap of Kate McKinnon firing her proton pack. And I literally almost just got on that bus. I was like, I don't care where you're taking me. I want to be on this bus and I want to go because this means something. This is something I have not seen before. It's so different. And if you are a white straight man, I don't know if you can truly comprehend that. And all I ask is that when a friend who is a woman or from a different race or a different sexuality than you says, this is super important to me, you maybe just shut up and listen. And it also bears mention that this movie would have been proposed in a boardroom full of white male execs. Like, I'm sure by the time this thing actually got green lit, all the knee-jerk reactions that we're talking about have been discussed at length. And not only was the movie made anyway, but the movie has self-referential tenets that poke fun at that, which to me makes it all the more revolutionary. It knows exactly what it's doing, it knows exactly what it's up against, and it's still its own beast, it's still its own thing in its own voice and it's just really magical so typically with the faculty of horror we don't tackle super new releases we wait until movies are at least on dvd to give you guys a chance to see it all because in our style of discussion we do give spoilers and this mini episode on ghostbusters will be no exception we're going to talk about major plot points and while there isn't a super mystery m night Shyamalan type thing going on here i think you will get more out of the discussion if you've seen it and just if you haven't seen it you should go see it anyway even if you don't want to listen to this episode. Just go so you know what everybody's talking about. So Ghostbusters in this iteration begins with the team forming. You have Erin, who's played by Kristen Wiig. She's kind of this highfalutin, almost tenured professor at Columbia University. She's striving really hard to reach that goal. And then she discovers this book that she was once a part of with her friend Abby about ghosts being real is still online and still available. She goes to confront Abby at her slightly lesser established school and ask her to take the book off of the web. Abby says, okay, okay. Aaron then meets Holtzman, who is a great engineer and is making all these machines and gadgetry. And all of a sudden, they get a call for these ghosts. They decide to go check it out. They see the apparition. It's totally formed. They're freaking out. They're trying to get their story out and put it on YouTube, and people don't believe them. Then we go to Patty, who is played by Leslie Jones. She works for the Subway Transit Commission. She sees a ghost in the subway, calls them, gets them to check it out. And they also see yet another ghost who they almost capture, but don't quite. Patty then joins the team. They decide to figure out why all these ghosts are suddenly popping up all over the place. There are these electrical devices being found on the scenes of these hauntings, and they realize that someone is actively trying to breach this dimensional grid thing to bring more ghosts into New York, bringing about the apocalypse. It is up to the Ghostbusters to stop it and to save the day. And holy shit, guys, I am getting chills just saying this. The idea that four women are coming together to save the day against ghosts is so fucking rad. I can't even deal with this. And the film is also peppered with just the right amount of references to the original. Just the right amount that it's not 
praying too hard on that nostalgia factor, but at the same time acknowledging that these are the expectations that people are going in with, which I think was a really genius way to handle it. It was very satisfying and Honestly, it's a minefield. If someone tasked me with writing a Ghostbusters remake, I would be fucking terrified. They always wanted to do a Ghostbusters 3. And basically, it was that Bill Murray was a holdout, then he and Harold Ramis had a fallout, and no one could kind of get it quite together. And then Harold Ramis very unfortunately passed away in 2014, and it just kind of seemed like this wasn't going to happen. Ivan Reitman then really realized that he couldn't do anything without Harold Ramis, and he didn't want to. So he then kind of started shopping around the script that existed to other directors, and he approached Paul Feig, who was known really for Bridesmaids, which is a terrific movie, big hit, as well as The Heat and Spy. He also did a ton of TV comedy direction like 30 Rock and Parks and Rec, as well as The Office. Now, the original script that Feig was presented with from Reitman had to do with a new set of Ghostbusters dealing with a ghosty threat and the old Ghostbusters coming in and passing on their knowledge and their technology and kind of revamping it a bit, but, you know, basically setting up a new generation. Feig really didn't like that. He felt like if he was going to do something, it had to be like a fresh start, like from the ground up, build it up again, really explore some new ways to talk about this idea because it's a fascinating idea. And the idea of ghost hunting has been in film almost since the inception of film. If there was always going to be a monster, there was going to be a monster hunter. So what about a comic monster hunter, like an update of Abbott and Costello? So here we have this kind of development of Ghostbusters 2016. Eventually, Paul Feig was doing all this really feminist-centric films that were comedies. So I think the idea came from when he and the other co-screenwriter, Katie Dippold, started collaborating. And then it just became a, why not? And I don't think from what I've seen and what I've read online that anyone really stopped them along the way. They were all, like, probably pretty hesitant, probably a little worried. But... This was a big thing, and this film is a really big gamble because Sony Studios, which made the film, is not doing so hot. You can see one of the better gossip stories to come out of 2015 were the Sony leaks, all the emails that got leaked across the board, tons of great gossip, tons of insane stuff to come out of that leak. One of the things was this Ghostbusters reboot, and a lot of the executives at Sony saw Ghostbusters as the potential to become their own Marvel Universe-esque franchise. So they really want to build it up. They want to throw a lot of money behind it, which they did, which is problematic, but also good. And here we are with this film. Now, one of the biggest differences I noticed almost right off the bat from the first scene was the color choice in this film. It is bright. It is colorful. It is fun. They all look great. Whereas in the films from the 80s, it's like a pre-Giuliani New York. This is still kind of the New York that Travis Bickle existed in. It is grimy. It is crime-ridden. There's the really wealthy, and then there's the really poor. It's working class, and it's grimy. It's dirty. You can feel it. It feels like palpable. And in this, it's like that post-tourist heyday New York, post-9-11. And like, we're all here, and shit's weird, but, you know... We're going to try to make this work. So I like that they didn't shy away from that. They didn't try to pull any punches. And it's a nice palate cleanser from something like Zack Snyder films, which are dark and gritty and all about male impotence in my estimation. 
Paul Feig was another apprehension of mine going into this film. Insofar as Bridesmaids and The Heat are hilariously funny, really interesting blockbuster movies, those movies are hilarious and wonderful, and they do contain some very powerful feminist sentiment, especially Bridesmaids. There's very powerful friendship and loyalty at play there. There are also women tearing each other down. There's a bit of basic bitch rhetoric that I couldn't help but notice, and I am so happy to say that there isn't so much as a waft of that in Ghostbusters. These girls are friends and they respect one another and there is nary a cheap shot to be had between them, which I can't believe how refreshing it was. It bums me out how refreshing that is and how noticeable it is. Yeah, there's probably like a bit of tension in the beginning between Abby and Aaron, but it quickly dissipates and you can just tell that these two friends are really happy to be reunited because Aaron believes. And for me watching the film, one of the most powerful aspects of it and something that was actually quite shocking to me how powerful it was, was the way this film deals with female perception and belief. Now, Erin has a kind of brief monologue about midway through the film as Patty and Holtzman are asking her, you know, why? Why did you go away from it? Or why did you believe initially? And she talks about when she was little, this mean old lady lived next to her. The old lady died. And then this old lady ghost appeared at the end of her bed every night for a year. She told her parents. She told people at school. No one believed her. They made fun of her. They put her in therapy. They called her Ghost Girl. And the only person that believed her was Abby. And again, this kind of goes into this female experience, which I'm not sure if everyone can quite share. And But the idea that female perception and female narratives are always suspect. There is always something potentially wrong or something hysterical about them. And it's it's so hard to overcome that. And I think a lot of us are still trying to overcome that. So for the main narrative to, in some ways very subtly, to me kind of overtly, but I think it works on both levels, to deal with the notion of someone not being believed and internalizing that disbelief to the point where they actually had to have a ghost vomit on them (laughs) to make her believe that there are ghosts and still being ashamed of that for a bit. But it's every time, you know, you see a story about a woman coming forward and saying something and it's like, she's a slut, she's a whore, she's a money grubber. It's an extrapolation of that, I think, in this film. And it was truly profound to me to watch. I also really enjoyed Erin's tension with her professional life, with her passion. She's going for tenure. She's trying so hard to be taken seriously. And that's why she's really upset at seeing this book. This book, which I imagine was a tremendous passion project for her. It was something that validated what happened to her. It was a collaboration with her sister in ghosthood. And she was so ready to repress that just to fit in, just to succeed in this patriarchal white man's world. And I saw myself in that because I thought of all the other, you know, writers and sociology nerds and horror movie fanatics who just don a suit and play the game all day. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it is a tension that I think women have to grapple with in a deeper way than men do. And I really appreciated seeing that in the film. And I love that that kind of notion of being believed and being who you are really came in juxtaposition to one of the main slogans of the first film, which they always say, We're ready to believe you. 
these Ghostbusters, these female Ghostbusters, come from a place of not being believed and constantly proving it and having the local government city hall shut them down to avoid mass panic and hysteria. And I thought that was a really great indicator of the way this film doesn't shy away from the female experience. You know, we could have had an old lady Ghostbusters that was just like, no, we're just like the boys, it's fine. And, and that would have been fine. But the way this film deals with so many things head-on is really quite impressive to me. That's right. And it even illuminates some things in the original for me. I mean, in the original film, you've got this character of Dana Barrett played by Sigourney Weaver. And Dana Barrett is amazing. She is such a great character. She is so fiercely independent. You know, this single career woman doing her thing in the 80s who's always being chased by the loser across the hall who wants to date her. She's taking calls from her mom who's bugging her about not hooking up with anyone yet. And, you know, she was reticent to go to the Ghostbusters for fear they wouldn't believe her. And Peter Bankman maybe teased her about it a little bit. The fact that that is totally turned on its head in this film was so wonderful. I also love how you've heard us say numerous times in this podcast, the feminist mission, if you could call it as such, is the dismantling of patriarchy, which oppresses men as well as women. It represses us all. And I thought even that side of feminism was represented in this film in the character of the villain, who is this young man by the name of Rowan. And you really get the sense that Rowan isn't the most social guy. He's pretty awkward. He's pretty strange. He's definitely highly intelligent, but he's also really intense. And it's pretty explicit that he's picked on by his peers. He is looked down on by larger society. And he snaps. And he's just so desperate for an alternate reality that he goes on this quest to break the barrier between the netherworld, so to speak. And so this theme of repression, of bullying, of forced masculinity that cannot be sustained and is unhealthy and corrosive, to have that in there I thought was such a fantastic foil. And I also love that it's revealed in the film that Rowan actually had to use Abby and Aaron's book for a lot of the basis of what he did and how his designs are kind of what they establish, but Holtzman has done them so much better. And I think Andrea said it to me after we saw the movie that, God, doesn't that guy remind you of one of those Gamergate douchebags? And it just felt like that mealy-mouthed, terrible person who has just internalized this kind of hatred, even to the point where at the climax of the film, when they're about to do battle and the ghost of Rowan has possessed Chris Hemsworth, who is their dummy receptionist, but he's very handsome, so that's fine. But he's possessed Chris Hemsworth, and he's leading these people on, and he wants to confront the Ghostbusters. And the Ghostbusters show up, and he starts saying these really gross microaggressions, like, oh, leave it to women to always be late. Does that proton pack come with an instruction manual? And I was just like, you're going to get it so hard. And then he did. It was amazing. Now, I feel we would be remiss in this conversation if we didn't address some of the problematic elements of this film, some of which came up right before the film's release and even a few months prior to. Now, the kind of biggest one that I could see was the portrayal of the only female black Ghostbuster. He's played by Leslie Jones, and she plays Patty Tolan, the transit worker, who then becomes a part of the team. There was a lot of conversation online about 
isn't this tokenism if the only black one is not a scientist and isn't this a bad representation? And Leslie Jones herself went to Twitter and immediately said, you know, anyone can be a Ghostbuster. I believe in this. I'm happy. I'm a part of it. Like, this is bigger than this kind of squabble. But I don't think that comment is invalid. And I definitely went into the film watching for that. Now, we're going to talk about that right now. And I came out of it feeling quite positive. This is me as a white woman saying that. So please take this with all of the grains of salt that you have. For me, yes, she was street smart, but she had a lot of book smarts. And it was her placement early on in the film that allowed them to identify Rowan so quickly and kind of get on his case and follow him. She wasn't as much an audience conduit as I thought she was going to be. I think she had one moment where she said, you know, speak English when Aaron and Abby were doing a lot of like scientific psychobabble. But other than that, she seemed to me to be fully engaged in the conversation and the narrative. The narrative really quickly shifted from these four disparate women coming together to them as a team. And so their backstories felt less important to me, the white woman saying these things right now. That's right. And of course, similar disclaimer as an educated white woman, take what I'm going to say, how you're going to take it. But I almost felt an implicit critique of the system in the character of Patty because we've got all these female Ghostbusters who are very brilliant and capable in science and in physics. And look at how they're struggling in the system. They are having such a hard time being taken seriously. I almost feel like the character of Patty was like, you know what? Fuck it. Fuck the system. I'm going to do what I do and I'm going to do it well. And she does. She takes pride in her work, even though it's maybe not the most glamorous job, but it has afforded her this very practical knowledge, which was integral to the film's plot. Integral. There was no way they could have solved this mystery without Patty's input. And she delivered it with passion and with knowledge. And I felt like the portrayal of her was very respectful in my reading. Yeah, I'd love Leslie Jones on SNL before this film. And I, I think this cemented for me that she truly is a movie star. And I expect and I hope really, really great things happen for her. And I, I think they will because, you know, there's such a dearth of interesting female characters and interesting women on screen. And she is just fascinating to watch. And I loved her and I love her magnetism and her presence and her timing. And she also, I think, really clearly articulated something that we were talking about a bit earlier in representation. When she was doing the press circuit for this film, they were all doing everything. They were on everything all the time. They're all great and charming and lovely. And Leslie Jones was on The View, which Whoopi Goldberg is one of the hosts of. And she said this. When I was young, uh, I always, my dad always let me listen to comedy albums and I always knew about comedy. I always loved comedy. Uh, the day that I saw Whoopi Goldberg on television, I cried so hard because I kept looking at my daddy going, oh my God, there's somebody on TV that looks like me. Aww. She looks like me. My dad recorded it for me. I, I literally watched it every day after school. I just, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart because now I know what I'm doing. That when I put on that Ghostbusters suit and little girls see me on TV now, mm -hmm. now they're going to go, I can do it. Yeah. And you gave that. You 
gave that to me, and I love you. I love you from my heart and my soul, and I love you for what you've done for black women. I love you for what you've done for black comedians, and I love you. I watched that at work, and I cried. My boss looked at me, and he was like, what's wrong, Alex? And I was like, allergies. It just, it encapsulated what I felt on one level and then on an even bigger level for her. And it truly cemented for me what this film was about. And if you guys have comments and and stuff you want to add to this part of the conversation, to any part of this conversation, please do write us. You know, we're not the voice of God here, but that was our take on it. Now, another interesting semi-problematic thing would be the Holtzman character. Now, this came out right around the film's release. And a lot of people, I think, in the preview screenings really love Kay McKinnon. And again, they're all fantastic. She has some really, really great moments. And there was some chatter online as to whether or not Holtzman was gay. So then Paul Feig, doing all these interviews, essentially said, yes, she's gay, but Sony wouldn't let us say it because big budget movies. Over the weekend, this first release weekend, it's really seemingly been embraced by the queer community, this character. And Kate McKinnon is out in real life. And again, it seems to be an amplification of her own self and her own comedy. All of these four women seem to be amplifying their own characteristics within these films. And I hope in the next film, I hope we do get a next film, that Holtzman will be fully embraced as a queer icon, because I think she could be. That's right. And as regards sexual tension, as regards romance, I feel like that was a main plot point in the original Ghostbusters movie and really isn't at all in the remake. There is a little bit of flirtation between Aaron and their super hunky receptionist, Kevin. And I remember hearing that Chris Hemsworth had been cast and I was like, man, I hope he's not going to be a device for them to act like men, which is to say, humiliate him, berate him, sexually harass him in the workplace. But it wasn't like that at all. Erin kind of flirted with him. She was kind of smitten with him. But ultimately, they respect him. And the movie culminates in a rescue mission to go get him. I loved the way that was done. I loved the way that was tackled. I love how there wasn't a male love interest or male source of approval that was a major plot point in the film. Yeah, and so I think some of the elements we've been talking about exist in a lot of male-driven movies, and that's all-male friends coming together, fighting or overcoming some kind of obstacle, and becoming even better friends for it. That could be anything from Stand By Me to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It could be a multitude of movies, but to see four women have that was deeply incredible to me as a 30-year-old woman. I have that in my personal life, but to see it on screen was so powerful. I was like basically like choking back tears for half the movie because it affected me so much. It, it meant that much to me to see this, to see this beloved idea that I had be fully realized in, to me, such a feminist way and in what I believe to be a really inclusive way. And I'm just so excited that this film exists. I'm excited that I got to see it. I'm excited generations ahead of me get to see it and generations behind me get to see it. That's right. And I almost feel like this is a good place for a disclaimer that this is not going to be an Oscar winning film. This is not a perfect film. It's not an amazing film in its 
practicalness, but it is incredible in its meaning and in its execution of these themes. And I'm seeing a lot of fights online where, well, you know, the ghosts look like shit. I didn't like the way Slimer looked. The story wasn't as strong. I agree with a lot of them. This is not a perfect film. However, it is a tremendously important film. And I'm so disappointed when those strengths are overlooked because the CGI wasn't as good. Like, really? What's more important in the larger picture of cinema, of pop culture, of cinema's importance on our lived reality, of the state of feminism and civil harmony right now? There's a bigger picture in cinema, and I really hope this film gives everyone a chance to step back and really look at it for what it is. And I think in the view of being objective, I think a lot of us, if you're around our age and you're, you know, early, mid-30s, you have to accept that if you loved Ghostbusters as a kid, it's part of your DNA. Like, you can't separate that objectively. You can't at all. It's part of who we are. If you love that film as a kid, it's in there. It's part of your soul. So I can understand there is some hesitation and some reluctance to fully engage with a new one, but fuck, imagine our parents taking us to see this fucking movie or watching us watch it all the time and being like, I don't like that part. That part's kind of funny. Meh. And a lot of the discussion I've seen online is like, this movie's not funny. It's not funny. This is the narrative's dumb. And it's like, I feel like we say this on this podcast all of the time. But subjectivity is so important. We can disagree on a film and both be totally right. So if someone ever tries to get into an argument with you about Ghostbusters isn't funny and you found it really funny. It's not an argument worth having. You will both walk out of there weaker for it. Likewise, I found this film very funny. It really spoke to me on so many levels. I thought there were so many great gags. I was engaged the whole time. And we're generally not a review podcast. But if you haven't guessed it already, I think we were both really big fans of it. So, like, please don't comment on this episode that you didn't find it funny. That's fine. Don't watch it. Treat it like Freddy Krueger. Don't give it any energy and leave it alone. Let the rest of us have this. Alex is absolutely right. It is impossible to compare a new movie with a beloved movie from the past. It is even subjectively impossible. We cannot possibly know now what impact the new Ghostbusters is going to have on cinema. But we can look back at the glory days of the original Ghostbusters and talk about how important it was. Right now, it's apples and oranges, and it probably always will be. So let's all keep that in mind when we are seeing all these fights that are raging online. And I just want to bring one up that I thought was especially surprising to me. There is a YouTuber out there by the name of Comic Book Girl 19, and I am a huge fan of hers. She has been on YouTube for years. She has made a career out of it. She's a bona fide YouTube celebrity, and she deserves every inch of it. I first became wise to her because she was very well-read on the Game of Thrones series, and after every episode of Game of Thrones as they would come out, she would do a recap that would situate it in the larger spirit of the books. She would talk about what was different from the books and why that might be, and she's fascinating to watch. She's gorgeous. She's really rad, and if you don't know about her, I highly encourage you to check her out, even though she did a video recently on Ghostbusters and the crux of her video was why it's important to be honest about the Ghostbusters and she was kind of saying the flip side to what we were just saying just now. She was saying that we really need to be honest with whether or not this was a good movie and that not every critique against this movie is necessarily misogynist and of course, absolutely, of course, she's exactly right 
from there. However, she kind of went on to describe what I can only glean is some kind of conspiracy theory. She seems to think that Sony intentionally pitted naysayers of this film as misogynists to stamp out any dissent. And basically, they promoted it that way, and now people feel like they can't speak against it or dislike it or give it a bad review for fear of being accused of sexism, which is so problematic, of course. And I'm watching this, and I'm like, oh, did I wake up this morning to find that feminism is hip and popular? Like, are misogynists the bad guys now? Because last I checked, it was the other way around. So I think Her argument, God bless you, comic book girl. You're not listening to this, but if you were, I am so with you all of the time. But I find that really problematic because feminism ain't hip. It's not yesterday. It's not today. It might be in the future, but it definitely isn't as regards Ghostbusters. And I do understand and appreciate your position that people speaking out against this should not be privy to the pitchforks of misogyny. I absolutely agree with that. But I do think the bigger picture is important. And I definitely do not think that this was a marketing scheme on Sony's part. One of the things I've heard since seeing this film, and I, I think Andrea and I both basically stayed away entirely from anything written on it because we wanted to go in fresh. We wanted to kind of stay abreast of some of the bigger issues that dealt with the film, but as much as we could plot-wise, go in super fresh. So we did stay away from a lot of it. But one of the things that came up over the weekend, again, this we're talking right after opening weekend, it was an article by Variety that was positing that why would Sony spend all this money on this film when it might not recoup its costs? Was it a kind of self-sabotage thing? Were there other factors at play? Like, it's, it's kind of a bullshit article. Why would Hollywood spend so much money on a movie? Well, guys, I have some numbers here. So Ghostbusters, right now they're saying cost $165 million on basically any film we talk about, especially big tentpole movies like this. You're going to add $100 million plus on top of that in terms of marketing and promotion. It just goes with it. They usually don't release those numbers, but you generally expect about half or more of the budget of the film goes towards promotion. On Ghostbusters opening weekend, it recouped, it came in second place and recouped $46 million. It was a few million shy of taking the top spot from a big Pixar animated movie, which little kids love going to see that. So great, that's fine. This has caused a lot of anxiety. Now, here are a couple facts. We'll link the Variety article in the show notes so you can see it. And if you agree with it, that's fine. And if you don't, that's fine too. But here are some numbers to keep in mind. Currently, Ghostbusters is Sony's best opening of the year. It is also ahead of one of Sony's other big films on its opening weekend last year, which was Mad Max Fury Road. There are other big tentpole films which have come out and grossed much less. So, for instance, The Legend of Tarzan, starring Alexander Sarsgaard, cost $180 million to make, opening weekend of $38.5 million. I did not see a Variety article about that. There are other things like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles new movie that cost $135 million, that opened with 30. Alice Through the Looking Glass, that was really big Memorial Day weekend, that cost $170 million to make, and it grossed $28.1 million on its opening weekend. 
like this controversy is a non-controversy in my mind. Hollywood plays a really weird numbers game, and this is not something to feed into. I mean, if you want to, fine, but I think this is kind of a non-story, but I did want to address it because I've seen several people talking about it and several people talking to me about it. Another thing to keep in mind is a lot of other films tend to make up a lot of their revenue overseas. We saw this, I think, most recently with Duncan Jones's version of Warcraft, which I heard was terrible and I don't care about it, so I didn't go see it. But that did really badly over here, got bad reviews, did not open well and did like, I think maybe 50 or $60 million domestically. But in China, it was huge. So it's still going to lose the studio some money, but it'll recoup quite a bit of it overseas. Now, Ghostbusters presents a special challenge to Sony because it is currently not being released in China. The reason for that mainly is that it deals with the occult. It deals with supernatural, ghost busting, all of that kind of stuff the censors don't want. Sony has even tried to release the film under another name in China, and that is Superpower Dare to Die Team, which if I could go back in time, I would name this podcast that. But they're trying to get it past the censors with that. I think because ghosts are obviously super integral to the core of this story, they're not going to get it there. So there's a lot of conjecture. Why would Sony spend this much money if they couldn't release in China and they have limited distribution overseas? Blah, blah, blah. Listen, Sony's fucking stupid. Sony's terrible. They're not a great studio in a lot of regards. So I think this is like a weird non-argument. This is like Hollywood makes terrible decisions about some things. So let's enjoy what we have. Well, that's right. And that's really what we're trying to get at with this mini episode. That is why the day after seeing the film, we wanted to rush into the studio and record this mini episode. I've barely even started editing our episode on The Lost Boys and on Fright Night just because we wanted to get this out while it was hot in our heads. We had seen it just yesterday. And all we really want to impart here is you don't have to love the film for its filmic elements, but please don't disregard the film for its importance. We really need you to take that from a pair of girls who wish they could have been Ghostbusters. What's interesting about this story, as it is now after opening weekend and the story is still unfolding, Alex mentioned the tremendous marketing campaign, but... I already talked about a toy that I wanted for Christmas when the first Ghostbusters came out, and that's not really the case with the remake. No, and perhaps I am a specialized case in this instance. So we are recording this on a Monday, but we recorded our Lost Boys and Fright Night episode this past Friday, so mid-July. It was Ghostbusters opening day, and I knew Andrea and I and our friend Allison were going to go see it on Sunday night. So I skipped off work a little bit early, was walking up to Rue Morgue, and I passed this big mall on my way up here. So I thought, you know what? I've got some extra time. I'm going to hop in there, maybe check out the Walmart, check out Toys R Us, and see what kind of Ghostbusters toys they have. And if they're cool, maybe I'll buy one, or I can go back after the movie and get them then, if I like it. And I went to both, did a solid look through, asked some very confused sales associates about it. There were racks of Batman versus Superman toys, racks of Star Wars toys. 
and not a Ghostbuster thing to be found. I found some Ghostbusters toys on like a bottom level of a Walmart shelf, but they were like the OG Ghostbusters, like Venkman and Egon, but they were weird packaging, like they were English and Russian. And I was just like, oh, I'm kind of pissed off about this. And, and I came in and Andrew and I were chatting before the episode and I told her all this and she was like, that's fucked up. And I was like, yeah, this is really fucked up. And we laughed it off and, you know, we went and recorded the episode. We went out afterwards, had some drinks and hung out. And then I went home and I realized, like, I'm really pissed off about this. Like, I've waited my whole goddamn life. I've waited at least 25 years of my life to have Lady Ghostbuster toys. Like, it was really sinking in for me how much I had anticipated this. So drunk Alex did some tipsy Amazon shopping and bought herself some toys. So I would like to right now publicly thank drunk Alex for making those choices and I think getting some pretty good deals on Amazon. But I got some of the Pop Funko figures and one of the movable action toys because some of them are really expensive now and I don't know, guys. I can't find them. I even checked a Walmart closer to my house uh, yesterday. Couldn't find them there. And yeah, I'm bummed out. And if you guys can find any, like part of this movie is just the gadgets that Holtzman creates. I want all of them. Like I want to buy all of them and then like go to the park or the school up the street from my house and be like, kids, we're just going to play. Everyone can play. We're going to play Ghostbusters right now. Here are all the toys. Let's go. And I don't have that. And I'm actively bummed out about that. Well, and you should be. All of us listeners, we all should be. Because if Alex can't find that, like, think of young Alex who had to wear a boy's jumpsuit. Like, why, when this movie comes out for the next generation of little girls, why can't they have that same experience short of designer Funko toys that you can't even fucking play with? Like, this has actually really rankled me for the bulk of the weekend. And do you hear that, comic book girl? It's not like they're making Ghostbusters tampons. I would totally use Ghostbusters tampons. Well, me too, but that's beside the point. So, yeah, I don't know. If you guys are out there and you're out there in the States or Sweden or wherever you are in Canada and you see Ghostbusters toys on the shelves and you want to take a picture and, like, tweet that at us, like, I just want to know they're out there and I want to know I've had, like, a totally bizarro random experience with this. And I'm going to choose to believe they're out there. And I'm not being a ghost girl about this, but I am being a ghost girl because ghost girls are rad. I believe that the toys are out there. And Alex's birthday is in September. So if you want to send something to the Rue Morgue office so I can surprise her. Thank you for checking out our mini episode. It was really important to us to get it out, and I hope you guys get something out of it. We would love to hear from you. I think when I see arguments online and I smash my head against my desk and wonder what kind of crazy pills the world is taking, I can often turn to Faculty of Horror listeners and find that there are really smart and articulate and critical people out there who feel the same way we do about stuff. And it's a large part of why we do this podcast. And we would love to hear from you on this topic. Yeah, we are recording this mid-July. This will probably drop early August, so some stuff could change from now until then. We're going to link the articles we've talked about and videos we've talked about in the episode notes, so please feel free to check those out. And we can have a conversation about that if there is a problematic element within the film that you want to address to us and help us out. We really welcome that. And yeah, Thank you so much for taking some time out of your lovely August to hang out with us. And you know what? If there's a kid you know who hasn't seen Ghostbusters, take him to Ghostbusters. I'm sure it's hot and steamy and you can all use the AC. That's right, because it is summer holidays for a little while yet. Kids are still on summer break, and as of this episode, so are we. So until we're back in September. 
Office hours are closed. Just want some more. I think you better call. Yes, 